Okay, so this, this morning I get to introduce Randy to you. She's going to be our teacher, and this will be her first time to teach with us. So we're excited to have her. Hi, guys. Okay, can I get a round of applause for Moses and Pharaoh outside? And it just wouldn't be fair if I didn't tell you all the story why they're out there, because on our leaders' retreat, we had to play a game, and they lost. And so if you lose in women's Bible study, you can be certain that um, you will have to dress as Moses and Pharaoh. Um, But again, I'm Randy. I am so excited to be up here today. As I said, this is my first time I've ever taught at Watermark, so forgive me. Um, for just being super nervous. I got all those holy jitters, um, as Sue calls them. Um, but I am, I told my small group this on the first day, y'all, I am not a biblical scholar by any regard, but I am a passionate, sold out lover of Jesus. And I am pumped to share with y'all what God has been teaching me, um, today. And so really, um, something that I treasure more than anything is just getting to sit in my living room with like my pajama pants and slippers and a cup of coffee with sweet friends and talk about Jesus. Like there's just, mm, I just love it. And so I'm just actually going to pretend that y'all are in like slippers and sweatpants and we have coffee and we are chatting, um, about Jesus because that is my, my happy place. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I am loving Exodus. And so how many new friends do we have in here today? I know we have some new people because of the waiting list. Thank God for training grounds. We're so excited um, that there was room for for them to be here today. And we have seen this theme in Exodus of God rescuing these people and then redeeming them. And then he's going to reveal himself to them. And I really, I feel like I'm like in this story, right? And sometimes Moses drives me absolutely crazy, right? And then I'm like, oh gosh, I'm exactly like him, right? And then I like, I see Pharaoh and he drives me crazy, but then my heart just breaks because I know he doesn't know the Lord, right? And so today I feel like we get to the super climatic part of our story. But before we dive into the plagues, I just want to share with y'all a little of God's rescue story in my life. And so I'm from Denver, Colorado, and I have three sisters and a brother, and my parents are functioning alcoholics. So for as long as I can remember, what that means is that really from about 8 in the morning till about 5 at night, they are really great parents. They're normal parents, right, that would take us to school and let us be in activities and all those things. But once 5 o'clock hit and the drinking started, then you just never knew what was going to happen, right? And so crazy stuff would happen, and that was just normal, but my parents were also really religious, I would say. And so we knew about God. Definitely, it was, we like never missed a Sunday service, and we never missed a sacrament, and we had all those things. But I just thought God was awful. Because I'm like, I couldn't even, no one had ever told me that God didn't change. I was like, well, if, you know, as kids, you, your picture of God is really your picture of your parents, and I was like, well, they, I never know what to expect from them. So I'm not about to like buy into this, this God that I just think is mean and angry. And I remember hearing about the, the plagues and I was like, man, that's just, that's just a mean God that he would send all those things like frogs and gnats and flies. Like I am not following that God. And so that just went on. And, and none of my siblings, we all just were like, And we kind of took from it that you could act and do whatever you wanted to do 
six days a week, as long as you were in the front pew on church on Sunday morning in our little matching dresses, and that, and that was good. But then, by God's sweet grace, when I was 16, I got asked to go to Young Life Camp. And Young Life was just the cool thing to do at my school, and so I could have cared less at it. I didn't think I even knew it had to do with Jesus. But I was like, get out of my house, I'm in, right? And, and all my friends were going, and my parents didn't know the difference, so they were like, sure, leave, get out. And um, so I go to Young Life Camp, and I learn about Jesus. For the first time, it was like the lights came on, right? And I learned about this, this Jesus that loved me so much that he would die for me and that he knew every wretched thing I had done and that he loved me just the same. And in that day, when I prayed with my Young Life leader, I mean, I really felt like he rescued me. Like I wasn't the same, I wasn't the same person. I was this new creation. And, and everything in me changed. My heart was new. But I still went back to my same circumstances. And I didn't know what it looked like to walk with Jesus at all. I just knew I loved him now. And, and I was different, but my world wasn't different. And then somehow by God's great provision, I got to leave Colorado and come to SMU for college. And for me, it was like, you know, kind of how Moses ran to Midian? I ran to Texas. I was like, get me out of of Colorado. And God was just so gracious at SMU. I mean, he just filled my life with the most amazing Christian friends and mentors and Bible study leaders and a, a church family. And I was like, Man, and just little by little, I, I had never read my Bible before, and I learned how to spend time in God's Word, and I just fell in love with Jesus. And it was amazing. And then by kind of a random sequence of events, I ended up the beginning of my junior year of college, I had to take a semester of classes at Colorado State, um, which is in Fort Collins, which is like an hour and a half away from my parents' house. And really, it was that semester that I felt God was telling me, like, Randy, you need to tell your parents about me. Like You need to tell your parents that you have given your life to Christ and that you are all in for him. And I was like, mm, are you sure, God? Like, <laughs> I don't really, I, I'll tell anyone about Jesus. Like, I love Jesus, but God, having to tell my family, like, that is, that is scary. And so, I, I mean, I was prayed up, and, and I really, I was like, okay, God, the best case scenario is I'm going to go in there and they're going to be like, yes, tell us about this Jesus, Randy, tell us, right? Even though I think I knew that it wasn't going to go that way. And it makes me think like when Moses had to approach the throne room of Pharaoh, I can't imagine the courage and the dependence on God that took because I was scared to walk into my home that I'd lived in my whole life with my parents. He, I can't imagine how scared to death he was to talk to Pharaoh Anyway, so I go to my parents that day, and I tell them, you know, that I, I had this relationship with Jesus and that I was all in and um, that I wouldn't be attending their church anymore and um, because they didn't know. They don't know the Lord, right? Like, they didn't know how to respond, so they just were so angry. And I was so certain that I was walking in God's will for my life, and yet it felt like the plagues were coming down on me. Because my parents were like, well, Randy, if that's your choice, then we don't want you to be a part of this family. And we're going to cut you off. You're not allowed in this house. We're not going to talk to you. We're going to cut you off financially, right, which I didn't have anything on my own, right? And then they're going to convince my four siblings who are like, you know, my, my best friends, we're going to convince them to be your enemies too, 
right? Because their wrath was a lot scarier than mine. And then I remember I was at Colorado State. I wasn't at SMU with like my friends and my fellowship and like people that would remind me of truth. I was by myself at Colorado State. And I just remember thinking like everything that I cherished and loved in my life was just being stripped away from me. But y'all, those things that were being taken away from me, man, that was God's perfect provision to capture my heart in a way that, that I didn't even know was possible at that point, to know his love in this, in this crazy deep way. And I will never forget, I vividly remember sitting in my friend's basement at CSU, and I'm sitting in a sleeping bag, and I'm crying, and I'm eating ramen noodles, and um, I'm writing in my journal, and I'm like, God, maybe this is not my wilderness, Maybe this isn't my desert. Maybe this is my land flowing with milk and honey because I realize now that you are the only thing that I need, that you are enough. But it took getting rid of all the people and the things that I cherished and loved for me to see that he was it. And y'all, it wasn't easy at all. But it was in that brokenness that I was more complete than I have ever been. And it, and it just started this, this crazy love with my Savior that I just knew that he was all that I needed. So today, as we dive into the first five plagues, I want us to really know the heart of God. So we're not really going to be talking about the heart of Pharaoh or about Moses. We are going to be talking about the heart of God. And at first glance, I think it's really easy to see the plagues as just an instrument of God's wrath. At least that's how I thought about him, right? Because he, he loved the Israelites, his people, and I thought maybe he hated the Egyptians, and so the plagues were just his instrument of wrath and judgment. But today, I would like to just show y'all that I just believe that the plagues were God's display of his great mercy, Right, that they were just this illustration of his past passionate pursuit of our hearts. He was going to show the lengths that he would go to for us to know him. And I love that if, if you've been tracking in the first seven chapters of Exodus, God is so faithful. He keeps reminding Moses and he keeps reminding me of who he is. Right, that he's like, I am who I am. Right, I am God, I am Yahweh, I am Jehovah, I am in control, I'm going to rescue you, I'm going to redeem them, I'm going to reveal myself to them. Right? He's like, I've got this. Right? And every time that Moses is like, but, but God, I'm, I'm, I'm not. And God's like, but I am. Like, you don't need to worry, Moses, I've got this. Right? And so we just, we get to hear the voice of God in, in Exodus. And I, and I love that about that God would be willing, right, to share himself with Moses and with us. And so it, it just makes me, before we get into anything else, like we need to talk about what was the purpose of the plagues? Before we look at them at all, like what was the heart of God in these awful plagues that we're going to talk about today? And I think if you guys have your Bibles, um, if you oh, would open them up to Exodus 7, and eight, those are the, the chapters we're focusing on today. And there are just three verses that I think just show us exactly God's purpose 
in sending the plagues. And the first one is Exodus 7, 5. And it says, And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. All right, so that they will know that I'm the Lord. The next one is 717. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. Well, then in 810, it says in the second part, Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like our God. So y'all, what was the purpose of the plagues? What is God's heart? That we would know him. He did all of this so that we would know him and not just so that the Israelites, his people would know him, but that the Egyptians would know him and more so that Pharaoh would know him. And I love it in verse 810 when he's like, you know, when God's like, so that you will know that there is no God like me, y'all. He's talking directly to Pharaoh. Pharaoh had already said, I don't know this God. We know that Pharaoh's heart is hard. It keeps getting harder. He keeps giving the stiff arm to God. And God keeps saying, I want you to know that I'm God. And maybe there's someone in your life, because there are in mine, right, that are at that place. They have just said, "Mm mm-mm, God, that's not for me. And you might think that they're a lost cause or that God's given up on them, y'all, and he has not at all. He's saying, I want them to know me. We change. God never changes, and his love never changes. And I love that about God. And his heart is that we would know him, really know him. And so as we walk through the first five plagues, we're going to see God systematically take down all of the false gods and idols of the Egyptian culture. And there were a lot of them. And he takes down their false gods and idols, not because he's, he's angry, right? Or because he hates them. It's because he loves them and he wants them to know him. And if you're, and if you're reading through in chapter seven, before we even get to the plagues, God sends Aaron and Moses again into Pharaoh's throne room. And it's one final warning before God sends the plagues. Right? And Pharaoh is like, no, no. And Aaron throws down his staff, and it becomes a snake, right? Well, then the magicians throw down their staffs, and they become snakes. Well, what does Aaron's snake do? Yeah, it swallows them up. Man, I'm like, what a picture. That is, talk about God's ultimate victory over evil. That he just sets the stage. Before any of the plagues happen, God's like, I've got this. The ultimate victory belongs to me. Y'all, and that is not to say that the enemy is not real. And we see it here in these scriptures, right? We see that he's this great deceiver. We see that the magicians, they're able to counterfeit these, you know, these miraculous signs. Right? And it says that the enemy is coming to kill, steal, and destroy us. It says that he's like a lion that's seeking to devour us. That's the enemy, the father of lies, the king of deception. Right, but let us not forget that the ultimate victory belongs to God alone, that he swallowed up those other snakes. And we know that we view a snake as a symbol of evil, right, and of Satan. 
Well, in Egyptian culture, a snake, especially the cobra that Pharaoh wore on his head, was a symbol of immortality. Well, God's like, I'm the only immortal one. Like, I'm taking that down. And in Colossians 2.15, it says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Just like God's snake swallowed up their snakes that day, y'all, if you ever need to be reminded that evil is not going to win, look at the cross. The victory is God's. We know the end of the story, right? We look at the cross, and he conquered sin and death that day. Right, And he's going to come back and he's going to conquer evil once and for all time. And it, man, we can look at our world and think that evil is winning. And it is not. Right, That God reigns victoriously and he's going to swallow up the enemy one day. And it's going to be great. So let's dive into the plagues. Y'all, the first plague, um, y'all know, is when God turns the Nile River into blood. And not just the Nile, but, but every bit of water that came from the Nile. So, you know, in all of their jars and, and everything throughout their house. Everything is blood in all the land. And this affects everybody. Okay? Not just the Egyptians, right? But it affects the Israelites too at this point. Well, y'all, the, the Nile River in Egyptian culture was a symbol of life. Not only because you needed water to actually stay alive, okay, but uh, the Egyptians heavily relied on once a year as they would pray and pray to the god and goddess of the Nile River, which were Happy and Isis. I think that's his name, Happy or Hoppy and Isis down there. Um, they would pray to them that the Nile River would swell up and it would overflow in the land and make the Egyptian soil super fertile. And so it made the Egyptian economy at that time the best in the world, allowing Pharaoh to be the greatest ruler in the world at that time. Okay, well, I mean, if that was the Egyptians' picture of life, man, when God turned the Nile into blood, what was God saying? He's like, life can only be found in me, guys. I'm taking down those false gods. As Jesus would remind us later, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life is only found in God. And he just sets the stage, right? I'm going to take down that God because I'm God, right? All right, so then we look at the second plague. And the second plague is when God invades the whole land with frogs. Okay, in each one of these, I feel like it gives me a little more of the heebie-jeebies, right? Because, like, it says, like, the frogs went everywhere, right? Like, even in the ovens and the kneading troughs. And um, I'm not really one into, like, reptiles or rats or anything like that. Like, my daughter loves them. Like, she would fill our whole house. Like, she would think this was, like, God's great act of love on the world. Um, I would just, <laughs> right? Um, but in... Egyptian culture, frogs were highly revered, okay, because they were a symbol of fertility. And so the Egyptian goddess, Hekwet, we're going to call her, she had the head of a frog. And she was a symbol, or she was the goddess of resurrection, fertility, and childbirth. All right, so they would pray to her often for resurrection, childbirth, and fertility. Well, you guys, God takes her down, 
right? And shows that she's nothing compared to our God. Because God's like, I am the resurrection, right? I'm the author and the creator of life. Not her. Not this frog-headed goddess, right? But me, I'm the resurrection. So the first plate, God's like, I'm the life. The second one, God's like, I'm the resurrection. Let's know these truths, right? And then we look at plague number three. And plague number two, let us not forget, that affected everyone too. Israelites, Egyptians, everyone's affected by the frogs. And then plague number three. And that's when God turns the dust from the ground into gnats, or a lot of, of translations say lice. But I'm like, let's get a picture of that, right? Like, ugh. Okay, and this was against the God of the earth and desert was this God named Set, or some call him Seth, right? He was also the God of chaos. Well, and something interesting why this plague, right, was, was even more like, blah, 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 is that the priests and high authorities in Egyptian culture were obsessed with cleanliness. Okay, so they would go through all these rituals, I guess, like scrubbing and, and all this stuff and shaving to be extra, extra clean before they would worship any god because they were obsessed with cleanliness. So in, imagine these gnats and lice crawling all over them, right? Imagine them crawling over you and they're just making you itch and they're in your clothes and they're in your beds and they're everywhere you go and you can't get away from them. And, and God, imagine, he took the desert and he made it into gnats and lice. So that's more the grains of the desert. That's more than we can possibly fathom, right? Like you're probably breathing in gnats and lice because it's just so prevalent everywhere you go. Well, I love that when God takes down Set, he's like, all right, I'm the only one who can make you clean, right? From dust you came and from dust you will return. And God's the only one who brings order out of chaos. He's the only one who brings beauty out of brokenness. And this guy, he was highly revered. I mean, he was nothing compared to our God. All right, so then we go to the fourth plague. Well, the fourth plague was that of the flies, okay? And this one is different than the first three because it only affects the Egyptians, okay? So all of the Israelites, the Hebrews at that time, lived in this, like, little village called Goshen, and um, God just put his hedge of protection around it. So the flies swarmed all over Egypt, but it didn't affect the Israelites, right? God's people, he's setting them apart. Okay, well, the flies, um, which I'm like, I don't know who would worship a fly, but this is the, the god of the flies, Uachet, and he was believed to give protection against disease and misfortune. Well, y'all, those flies, it's not that they're just nasty, right, and that they would bug you, like the gnats and the lice. Those are just, that's just gross, Right? But the flies, actually, they not only carried disease, but I guess they would go and they would lay all their eggs on the agriculture, like on the vegetation. And then when the larva hatched, it ate all the vegetation. So that's why it says in the scripts that it ruined the land. So this devastated Egyptian economy, 
right? It, it really would have devastated them. It wouldn't just have bugged them. But it was like, that's our livelihood, right? Because they, they had the, one of the greatest economies, if not the greatest economy in the world, because of their lush agriculture. And, and God took it down. Because, y'all, I think God was just saying, right, he's the only one that can protect us, right? You actually can't protect him against disease and misfortune. Only God can. He's the only one who can heal our diseases and take good out of misfortune. All right, so then it's our last plague. And the last plague is where there is like a pestilence that affects all the livestock, Right, which included all of the, the cattle and the goats and the rams and, and all of that. So all the livestock. But again, it only affects the Egyptians. Well, some of y'all might ask, well, why did the Israelites even get bothered at all by this? Right, like why would the Egyptians, we get God's trying to show Pharaoh, so the Egyptians are affected by all of it. But maybe why were the Israelites, why did they get affected by some and not by others? Well, I think as Sue reminded us last week, y'all, the Israelites, they had been slaves for 400 years, right? Many of them, that had become their identity. They had forgotten that they were God's chosen children. They had forgotten their real identity, as Sue reminded us we so easily do. And, and they had started worshiping the Egyptian gods, too. They had become part of the culture. So just as God was taking down the things that the Egyptians worshipped, he had to do that to the Israelites too. So from now on, from plague four and five and, and on through 10, it's just going to affect the Egyptians. All right, well, y'all, the livestock um, in Egyptian culture were highly revered. Okay, so there were many more than just Pitta, Minevis, Hathor, and Amon. Okay, but those were the four dominant um, livestock gods because they had heads of cattle and rams and bulls and those things and they were seen livestock was seen as very holy in in egyptian culture and these were the gods of love beauty or joy well when god takes out the livestock again devastating right to the people because not only was this, was this probably their food source and what they relied on, but it also was their workforce. It's what they used, right, to have this great agriculture. So now it's like, well, we feel pretty hopeless. Like all our plants are ruined. We have no livestock at all. And I love it because God is just reminding them like, man, I'm the only holy one. Right? I'm your only source of beauty and love and joy. That only comes from me. Because God is faithful to remind us of the truth. And so, y'all, as we look at these things, y'all, God in his great mercy used the plagues to take down the idols or false gods in their lives. And so again, why? Y'all, because he desperately wanted them to know him, to know that he alone is God and that he is and forever will be the only one worth worshiping. In Exodus 20, and we're going to get there later on this year, but as God's giving the Ten Commandments to Moses in verses 3 and 6 of Exodus 20, he says, 
you shall have no other gods before me. For I, the, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Right? But God's not like the crazy kind of jealous. Right? He is the ever-loving, will-do-anything-for-your-heart kind of jealous. And you were made, I was made by him and for him. And he wants our whole hearts for our whole lives. That is the heart of God, that you would know him. That you would know that he is God. Right? And then if we looked at Romans one twenty three, it says, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And y'all get it. I know that we're not worshiping the gods of frogs or flies or cattle. But y'all, we have too often taken God off his throne and replaced him with other objects of our affection. So my sweet friends, what are the idols in your life? Who do you think about more, obsess more over, are consumed more by than God himself? Who is the king of your heart? Be honest with yourself, right? Who or what have you put on the throne? Because it's his throne, y'all. It belongs to him alone. And I want y'all to think, you guys, is it? Is it materialism? Is it that you're so keenly aware of all the trends and fads and everything around you that you just want more, right? That you spend so much time on Pinterest thinking about, oh, man, what's the latest and greatest? That's what I want. And it consumes you and you put it on your throne. Maybe it's wealth and money. Maybe it's that you have a lot and you just want more, that you find this great security in having more money, Right, that your storehouses are filled up on this earth. Or maybe it's that your husband lost his job or that you don't have one, right? And you just feel like there is not enough. And you're so worried that there's not enough money that you're having a really hard time trusting God and you've put money on your throne. And maybe it's comparison. Maybe it's just that you want the approval of other people so badly. Right, that you're constantly thinking, oh gosh, oh gosh, they're so much better than I am. They're so much prettier than I am. They're so much more stylish than I am. Or, oh, well, at least I'm doing better than they are. And you sit on your Facebook or Instagram and you constantly are sizing yourself up to everyone around you. And you've put the opinion of others on his throne. Maybe it's your husband. Right? Maybe it's that he's so amazing and you love him so much that really he's the king of your heart. That you care way more about what he feels about you than you care about how God feels about you. Right? Or maybe it's that you are so angry with your husband or bitter towards him. Maybe you just have no emotion towards him anymore. Right? And all those feelings have taken over your heart and pushed out that love that you have for the Lord. Maybe it's that you're single or you're divorced and you desperately want to be married. And really in your heart you think, well, God, nothing will ever fill me like a man will. Mm. Or maybe it's your kids. 
Maybe your kids are grown up or growing up, and you find just your identity in their successes. Right? Like, they do good, and you're like, yeah, I'm awesome. Right? Or they fail, and you're like, man, I'm a failure. If I had only done something better, then this wouldn't have happened for my child. Or maybe it's just that you have little toddlers or babies, and you want them to act perfect all the time, right? Because that's a reflection on, you think, on the type of mama that you are. And so you have put your kids on a throne that only belongs to God. Or maybe it's your desire for a baby, right? Because I know that that was on my throne for way too long, right? That, that you just think, man, God, that's what I want. And in your heart, you want a baby more than you want God himself. And, or maybe it's that you've experienced incredible grief or loss. Maybe you've lost someone you love so much. Maybe that's through a miscarriage. Maybe that's a baby. Maybe that's a spouse or a parent or a best friend. Y'all, that is devastating. But instead of running to the God of all comfort, you're just consumed by this loss and this sadness. Maybe it's your outward appearance. Maybe you care so much about what's on the outside that you don't even have time to think about what's on the inside. And y'all, that was me too, right? It took losing my hair and my breasts and breast cancer for God to show me that he alone made me beautiful, right? That it was a heart that was in love with him that defined beauty. But that was on my throne. Maybe it's your weight, Maybe you're obsessed with a number on a scale. That on the days that it's down, you feel really great, and the days that it's up, you feel really terrible. And your identity isn't in who God made you, right? It's defined by a number on a scale. Maybe it's your accomplishments. Maybe you're the person that loves. If you could have a trophy for everything awesome, you would love it. Right? Or if you could get an A-plus paper and put it on your refrigerator, that would be you because you love to find your worth and your accomplishments. And you care more about that than you care about God. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's that you had one and you were spectacular at it, right, and you kind of miss it. Or maybe it's that you have one right now and you're trying to balance being a mom and a follower of Jesus in this career that is just consuming all your time. Maybe it's a standard of perfection, right, for all my perfectionist sisters out there, right, that you end up feeling like you're just not quite good enough. And you put that standard of perfection on everyone else that you know, right? And let us be reminded God is the only perfect one. Maybe that it's you're afraid. Maybe you're the worrier that you can't find the joy in today because you're so afraid of what could happen tomorrow. And you're just crippled by fear of the what ifs. Maybe it's your to-do list, right? Maybe it's just that you're so busy, right? That that just consumes all your time. And it's not that you purposely really took God off his throne, but you just, even when you're filled with so many good things, right? You just don't really have time for him, because you're just so busy doing all these things, and you find joy in getting to check all those things off your list. Maybe it's shame and guilt. Maybe truly in your heart, 
You just feel unworthy of God being on his throne in your life. And that is just robbing you of this great, passionate love that God has for you. Maybe it's unforgiveness with someone. Maybe it's just that you are mad at someone that you're so deeply wounded. And the truth is that you haven't forgiven them. And so you've put them on your throne and your unforgiveness towards them. Maybe it's that you're mad at God. It just boils down to it, right? Because let's just be honest. Y'all, sometimes when life just stinks, we are just mad at God. And we don't want to admit it, right? But that might be our hearts because we want to blame someone, and so it's just easy to blame him. And we've taken that mad, and we put it on our throne. Or maybe, y'all, it's just you. Maybe you're so consumed with you that you have put yourself on God's throne. That really, at the end of the day, you care more about you than you do about anyone or anything else in your life. Maybe it's just that you feel entitled to mommy time because everyone else needs you all the time. Right? And so you just feel like, I need some Netflix. I need some shopping. I need some pedicure. I just need me instead of, I just need God. Y'all think about it. What are the false gods and the false idols that you have put on the throne of God? And y'all, I just have the best news. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And y'all, the chains of the Israelites, they were obvious. It was so clear that they were in bondage. But that doesn't make the chains of the Egyptians any less real. Right? Or the chains of Pharaoh. And some people, they wear their bondage and their slavery on the outside. And it's obvious. They're obviously struggling with an addiction, or they're obviously struggling with some, some bondage in their lives. But then there's others of us who have become masters at hiding those chains. We don't want let, to let people in and let, us, let them know what we're really worshiping. Well, y'all, until we allow God to be on his throne in our lives, we are in bondage to the things and the people that we choose to worship over him. Y'all, God made us to be free. He came to rescue us. And we were made by him and for him. And while we waste our time idolizing other peoples and things, our hearts are wasting away. He desperately wants you to know him. And know his love. God wants your whole heart. And he wants his whole throne. Right? God's throne in your life was made for him alone. And he's not willing to share it. And y'all, I get it. Sometimes when things and people, when they are taken off the throne, it hurts a lot. And it devastates us. And it feels like the plagues are coming down on our lives. Y'all, when you want to hear the lie that that is God's instrument of wrath in your life or his anger, I want you guys to think, no, this is his display of his great mercy. This is God just wooing you back to him. This is his passionate pursuit of your hearts. This is God saying, I'm enough. You don't need anyone or anything else. I'm enough. I love it in in Philippians 3, 8, Paul prays. I consider everything a loss 
compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Y'all, garbage. None of these things matter apart from us knowing God. We can consider them all a loss that we may know Christ more and know how much he loves us, right? They are just garbage. And y'all, it wouldn't be fair if I didn't tell y'all how God turned the, the plagues in my life, right, into something so beautiful. Right, because the girl that was crying in the basement of a friend's house, right, God rescued and he redeemed, right? And I not only got to marry the most godly guy I ever know, but I got to join a family that had this legacy of faith. But God wasn't done there, y'all. Now all four of my siblings have come to know the Lord and are passionately pursuing him. Right, and two of my sisters have married godly men. And my family is changing for God's glory, for the kingdom, right? Because of God's great mercy and his passionate pursuit of my heart and their hearts. Even when it felt like it was this desert, right? Like it was over. Man, God made it my promised land. He made it this land flowing with milk and honey for me. Because y'all, do you get it? God's love for us really is the most epic love story that has ever been told. Y'all, that the creator of the universe, right, the most powerful, mighty, strongest warrior that there has ever been, with the most tender, compassionate, loving, understanding heart that anyone has ever known, has gone to every length possible to capture your heart so that you would know that he is God. Y'all, he has rescued you from darkness and brought you in to his marvelous light. So y'all, whether it's from the plagues of Egypt to the cross on Golgotha, there has never been a greater love. And so as you look at the plagues today and you study them, y'all, I just want you to ask yourself, do you know this God? Do you know this love? Right, this love that is greater than anything else. Right, because it's God's heart for you to know him, really know him. And then have you allowed him to be on the throne of your life? And what do you need to take off of it if he's not on it? So my prayer for you guys today and what I've been praying and what I'll keep praying is in Ephesians 3 verses 18 and 19. It says that I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. See, I'm going to pray for you, and then you can have fun in your small groups. Uh, Precious Jesus, thank you so much for this sweet time. Um, with these friends, Lord. I pray, God, that you would just capture our hearts in a new way, Lord. I pray that we would just surrender our thrones to you alone, God, and that when things are taken out of our lives, God, that we would see them as your great mercy, God. Thank you for pursuing us and loving us 
and bringing us into your marvelous light. We love you. Amen.